This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and center. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioral challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You are listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele here in New York. Guy Johnson is running for the last train out of Waterloo right now. He'll be joining us uh, later on in the week. It's been quite an interesting day. Let me take you through some of the top stories right now. So the big market mover was the U.S. inflation data. European stocks after that jumped the most in about a month. U.S. inflation climbed less than expected on a core level and a headline level, and that's feeding the idea that the Fed can now downshift. Huge relief rally in the equity market. Bonds move lower. What's been interesting, though, over the last few hours is that the S&P has slowly given up some of its gains now. We're only up by 9 tenths of 1 percent. We are below the 200-day uh, moving average, despite the fact that yields and the dollar continue to be lower. Now, many are saying that the jump function in the markets and how we were positioned uh, from an options level and an overall index level means we were coiled to rally kind of no matter what the number is. So how we close will be quite interesting. But as lead for Europe, European stock 600 uh, closed up over 2%. You had Euro stocks 50 up by 1.6. You had the CAC uh, up by 1.4. So um, you guys are done. You guys are doing pretty well. Uh, the FTSE 100 closing up by 7 tenths of 1%. One more point of note here, and then Charlie Pellet will take through the really important headlines is some of the data that came out of the UK today. Um, UK wages, they are rising at close to a record pace. Um, official uh, figures show that average hourly earnings, excuse me, average earnings excluding bonuses were 6.1% higher over the last three months year on year. Public workers, though, their salaries aren't going up as fast, and that's going to put even more pressure on the government, hence strikes, hence guy running for the last train out of Waterloo. That's a quick snapshot here of some of the headlines. Let's get some deeper stories with Charlie Pellet. Hi, thank you very much. Got to begin with the rail strike because workers have begun a series of strikes designed to cripple Britain's transport system over the Christmas period, triggering a war of words with the government over who is to blame for the crisis. Thousands of members of the National Union of Rail, Maritime and Transport Workers are walking out on train companies across the country alongside colleagues from other labor groups. The Transport Salaried Staffs Association. They will also strike tomorrow, Friday, and Saturday. Great Western Railway will be hit by a separate strike on Thursday. Bank of England Deputy Governor John Cunliffe says UK house prices could fall by as much as 20% without causing distress to most homeowners. The BOE does not forecast property prices, but Cunliffe told reporters that homeowners may see the market falling back from the highs over the last two years when cheap money and stamp duty reliefs during the pandemic sparked a mini boom. Berenberg has cut dozens of jobs in London in its second round of redundancy in the British capital this year as the German investment bank struggles with a slump in deal activity. About 55 people in London were let go today across the investment bank. And boutique investment bank FinCap Group confirms it has cut headcount and cancelled its interim dividend as the economic downturn weighs on investor sentiment. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. All right, Charlie, thank you so very much. Yes, yeah, like the normal culling uh, versus the extra culling of the workforce. Um, okay, so that's that's the snapshot on the eco level. 
particularly in a market level. Now let's get to one of the hottest cases right now within Wall Street. And that is what's happening uh, with Sam Bankman-Fried as well as FTX. So a couple things are happening. First off, John Ray, the current CEO of FTX, is currently testifying among the House Financial Services Committee. He's been doing so for the last hour and a half, answering a ton of questions um, about where the money went, how much money has been lost, how are customers going to get repaid, and how intermingled all the funds were. We're going to get back to that hearing in just a moment because some of the details as you peel back this onion are truly fascinating. In the meantime, we wound up having the SEC and the CFTC both suing Sam Bankman-Fried on uh, civil charges. At the same time, the Southern District of New York uh, filed criminal counts, eight criminal counts of fraud, campaign finance breaching, misuse of client funds against Sam Bagman-Fried. At the same time, he was arrested yesterday in the Bahamas. So I think it's worth an update on the technicalities that Sam Bagman-Fried is and the pressure he is going to be under. So joining me now is Bloomberg U.S. legal reporter uh, Chris Dolmish. Chris, can you walk me through specifically what we learned about the Southern District of New York over the last 24 hours and the, and the case filed against him? Yeah, hi. Uh, good afternoon. Um, the case, um, as he said, was unsealed um, this morning, uh, a couple hours ago, um, revealing there's eight pending counts against um, Schmackman Freed, um, ranging from conspiracy to commit wire fraud on customers to conspiracy to fraud the U.S. and violate campaign finance laws. Um, there's not a whole lot of detail in the indictment itself. Um, we've certainly learned that um, he's going that the government accuses him of conspiring to uh, hide the financial condition of the company to lenders and to customers uh, and to use customer deposits to um, to pay the, the bills and uh, of Alameda research. So do they have to prove intent? If we just stay on the criminal charges for a moment, does the southern does the prosecutor have to prove intent to defraud? Or is mismanagement and lackadaisical controls enough? Well, it's hard to say what a jury would ultimately decide in the case. Um, but, um, you know, it, it certainly would help their case if they could prove intent. Um, New York state law um, does not require enter as what is intent to defraud. Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that, could, that would have to be a required element if you know, if there was a clear-cut case of, say, wired fraud or something like that. What do we know? Okay, that's the criminal part. Then we have the civil lawsuits from the CFTC and the SEC. Can you walk us through how they are similar and how they are different? So they're very similar. Pretty much almost every time there's a major white-collar case, Um, you know, if it involves securities, the SEC, if it involves commodities, the CFTC, uh, would be filed parallel suits at the exact same time as the charges, the criminal charges are filed. Um, in this case, we obviously have both. Um, so which much complicates his legal situation much more. Um, however, those are really the least of his concerns right now um, because the criminal indictment is here and he's going to have to fight that and fight for his freedom. So those will likely be put on hold. Mm-hmm. Anything that would happen there would probably, you know, not really take place until after there would be any resolution of this criminal case. And if, you know, he got convicted, that would kind of be some additional legal um, issues for him. If not, then he could try to fight that as well. But there's not a whole lot of big difference. The SEC can kind of give a little bit more detail mm-hmm. of the alleged fraud and what they think is going on. The SEC complaint gives us a fuller picture 
of what the you know of what they allege. Um, the SC, the criminal complaint is much more limited. Just kind of talks about the elements of each crime and whether or not you know and what they accuse him of doing. Mm-hmm. It doesn't go into the detail of whether there are cooperators, you know, who the co-conspirators are, that sort of thing. Right. They just name him uh, in that for now. Um, he's in the Bahamas. He's arrested. Do we have an idea of if yep. he's going to get extradited? And do we know what kind of defense or what what it's going to wind up looking like? Don't know, really know about the defense quite yet. His lawyers haven't really talked. Um, in terms of extradition, um, we're, he's has a hearing today, basically an arraignment, and I, I'm sure we're going to find out more. We are hearing from a Nassau um, uh, Bahamas uh, source right now, the Nassau Guardian, that he says he's not waiving his right to an extraction hearing. Which is very interesting. It might mean he decides to fight this case down in the Bahamas, uh, or not fight the case, but fight his removal from the Bahamas. Uh, we don't really know exactly what kind of grounds he would argue that on, mm-hmm. but um, there have been cases. We had a Czech businessman uh, about 10 years ago, um, 15 years ago, he was accused of, of a bribery um, scheme, and he successfully fought extradition. He's still in the Bahamas. Um, there. Oh, wow. Okay. So um, it could, if he chooses to fight this, this could take months, years. Um, but it, there's also certainly the possibility he just decides to come back and fight the charges on his own here in the United States. In terms of the Southern District of New York criminal case, do those things kind of can they get expanded to include other individuals um, or uh, yeah. are they going to be a separate incident? No, most assuredly, they could file a superseding indictment to add charges, allegations. Um, you know, other defendants, if they if they wish, um, you know, we hope to find out more about whether there's a cooperator. The fact that there are conspiracy charges mm-hmm. um, kind of hints at that. But we really have no firm idea whether there are, is cooperators or who who is cooperating yet. Um, I have so many more questions for you, but I'm only going to bother you for a few more minutes. But um, th- this was filed extremely quickly. Is it normal for criminal charges, eight counts of criminal charges to be filed this quickly? So I'll say that in the past, um, maybe not investigations would take a lot longer. Um, you would have to have uh, there would be papers to look through, things like that. In the past couple of years, especially with the recent um, U.S. Attorney Damian Williams, um, these financial investigations, we take Archegos, for example, have mm-hmm. moved very quickly. They've moved very quickly to gather evidence and bring charges. Um, so it's clear that they're working on a, on a quicker pace than uh, previous administrations. Um, so it is it is not always this usual, but mm-hmm. um, it does seem that they worked very quickly in this case. So they were meeting all last week in uh, the, the U.S. Attorney's Office down um, in Lower Manhattan. So what are we going to be watching for next when it comes to Sam Bankman-Fried? Really, the extradition is the biggest question. Um, we really want to know if he's going to fight this, if it's going to take a while for him to, to, um, to get out down, you know, to get out of the country and come over here, if he's just going to say, hey, I'm coming, and to fight the charges here on U.S. soil. Then that leads us to what's been happening in D.C. over the last hour and a half. So um, this is the House Financial Services Committee. Tomorrow is the Senate. They were obviously going to be interviewing in the afternoon Sam Bankman-Fried and in the morning John Ray, uh, the current CEO of FTX. Um the latter isn't obviously going to be happening because Sam Bankman-Fried is in a jail in the Bahamas, but the former has been unfolding. What have you learned from the testimony of Mr. John Ray? Uh, it's been pretty interesting. Um, he's been um, obviously questioned 
hard, and we're hearing lots of uh, random opinions on crypto from the panel. Always. Um, it's Congress, after all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, um, you know, it's just very striking to, you know, hear him continue to uh, emphasize that there was really no controls here, um, that this was, you know, not a very sophisticated scheme that's alleged. Um, it, it, you know, it, it makes... It makes one wonder if the if it's going to be an easier job for the prosecutors than um, maybe it appears just because what he's saying is that there's really no controls and there was nothing um, to to hold on to customer money. So um, who knows what that means for the criminal case and the evidence that we're we're, we're looking for and and really be will be interested to see. We're going to go back to the hearings in just a moment, but I'm I'm curious as to what else you're looking for because. There's only so much that John Ray can say um, in terms of how it was run. I mean, something that stood out to me was when one representative asked, like, how it was so bad. And he talked about how it was run on QuickBooks, for example, and how, yeah. um, you know, expense reports were approved and asked for stuff on Slack. What else are we going to be expect? Are you expecting to hear or want to hear? Well, I'd like to hear, um, at least from you know the the years of a criminal of a legal reporter. I'd certainly like to hear, um, you know, if he has you know any more you know concrete details on what happened. Um, you know, if he can point to certain instances or certain communications um, that were that were made um, that can kind of highlight you know what was going on here mm-hmm. and show um, how you know where the money was supposed to be going and where it, where it did go. That's really the, the most, you know, interesting p- points that I would look for there because he, as, as, as a lawyer for the, you know, for the, uh, for the company at this point with the bankruptcy, he really has a, an inside view into what really happened because he's seeing where all the assets went, mm-hmm. you know, where the assets are, you know, he met with prosecutors. He probably knows just as much, if not more, than the criminal defense attorney. Yeah, no, and probably maybe more than Sam Bankman-Fried at this point. You could also maybe argue. Um, <laughs> you could definitely argue that. Yeah. Hey, Chris, really wonderful stuff. I super appreciate it. It's really complicated for a non-lawyer person to break it down. So thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Chris Dolmich. Uh, he's Bloomberg U.S. legal reporter. Um, so I want to take you back to the hearings for about another half hour so you can get a little bit from the horse's mouth here. Um, you have Republican Sean Caston. He's a Democrat from Illinois. He's now questioning um, uh, John Ray. Let's listen in here. Billion, because obviously that's a recovery pool for our for our customers. Thank you. Yield back. The gentleman from New York, Mr. Zeldin, is now recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Ray. I know you referenced earlier that you had not yet read uh, Sam Bankman-Fried's testimony that was prepared for today. I, I had a question that I wanted to ask, uh, and I, I was going to read you something that he had included in his uh, remarks. In late 2021, I believe that Alameda Research likely had a net asset value of substantially over $50 billion market to market. I believe that Alameda was likely leveraged long, perhaps about 1.1 times leverage. That is, it had corresponding assets for roughly 90% of its position, borrowing the remaining 10%. That was roughly 120th of the maximum leverage FT allowed and roughly one-third of the leverage assumed by the average FT margin trader. In early November 2022, over a three-day period, the market value of assets that Alameda Research had held declined dramatically, I believe, by more than 50%. Uh, have you yet seen any evidence of a market value drop 
in Alameda's assets before November 2022? We, we haven't gone back to, to, to trace, you know, the, 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 the actual, I mean, to compare his statements with what actually happened in the marketplace. I mean, clearly there was volatility and a huge market drop in crypto over that 12-month period. So it, it wouldn't surprise me that, uh, you know, his leverage numbers changed perhaps even dramatically during that time period. Um, I think the problem at the heart of this is that, you know, his positions, you know, the collateral he had behind that, he didn't have the same auto liquidation provision that a margin account would normally have. You usually can't lose, you know, if it's structured properly, you shouldn't be able to lose more than your collateral. Otherwise, the position closes out and there's no harm in the brokerage firm, you know, isn't, if it's a brokerage account, for example, they wouldn't be short cash. They wouldn't have to go out to get the money from you. You close out the position. None of that existed with, uh, with the Alameda positions. They had almost an, a complete ability to lose money beyond their collateral. Are you yet in a position to be able to describe, summarize the assets that Alameda had? We, we do have, an, you know, an inventory of, uh, of uh, the investments we made. Uh, that's pretty clear. We've got those in the hands of uh, our investment bankers at Perella, and we're trying to understand those investments. Uh, ultimately, we'll market those investments. You'll see this week that some of those investments uh, will, be, uh, will be put up for sale. Uh, the crypto assets, a, a little bit different. Uh, what's on the exchanges, we can see. There's exchanges, about two dozen exchanges across the world where we know we have crypto assets. They're in our name. We're securing those and removing those into cold storage. Uh, we have you know, other uh, positions in cold wallets and hot wallets We've got visibility to that. The question really is, are there wallets that we don't know about? Certainly that is the potential because the way this company was organized, there may be wallets that don't have our names, we don't know where they are, and that's gonna be a, you know, a difficult task ahead of us. But what we can see and what we have visibility to, we're grabbing control over. So we'll learn more this week. We should learn more in the coming weeks. <clears throat> Mr. Ray, you mentioned the documentation that you don't have earlier during your testimony. Uh, can you share what documents you have uncovered with respect to the transfer of funds from FTX to Alameda? Uh, it's voluminous. Uh, you know, uh, the the you know, the record keeping uh, uh, you know wasn't very clean in the company, but we should be able to trace the movement uh, of crypto assets. I mean, inherently in the nature of the crypto, you should be able to to see the movement and where it started and where it ended up. We'll obviously track you know, the banking information. We do have bank records. Uh, sometimes we have to go right to the source, the, right to the bank to get historical records because they're not uh, you know, on, in hand, if you will, uh, at the company. But, but one way or another, we'll get the banking records and we'll be able to trace the sources of, of cash, how that cash was utilized to buy assets. Once we can identify the assets, we can then trace the asset from either uh, you know, transfer to other currencies or ultimate you know, payment outside the company. So it's just a very in, intense forensic process, but we'll have the records ultimately uh, to do that. We'd be interested in receiving more detailed explanation of the documents uh, that you have. And one last question, can you describe what documents you identified with respect to internal controls and governance? Well, th there isn't any, uh, you know, to speak of. I mean, the, the company is virtually void of any internal controls or documentation. Uh, resolutions are absent. 
uh, authorizations approving massive loans, for example, the loans of the insiders. I haven't seen any resolutions approving those. When, when Sam Bankman-Fried signs on behalf of the company and then he signs his own loan, that should tell you a lot right there. Gentleman's time has expired. The gentleman from New York, Mr. Meeks, who is also the chair of the House Committee on Foreign Affairs, is now recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And Mr. Ray, it's, uh, thank you for your testimony here today. You know, and if you've been a member of Congress as long as I have been, and it just seems eerily uh, it was you that had to take over Enron uh, when uh, I was sitting here at that particular time. Uh, and we were looking at that as being one of the biggest uh, scandals that we've ever seen. And now, I believe in your testimony today, you said this may be even bigger, of which uh, is, uh, is, is really concerning to me. Uh, particularly since, you know, um, I, I, I do believe that uh, blockchain technologies uh, have a role in fostering financial inclusion and facilitates cross-border transactions. But what we didn't have and what we don't have are the real safeguards against misuse by bad actors. Uh, and uh, as a result of that, I know I've been intricately involved uh, with uh, New York State. Uh, and New York State was one of the first nations to create a virtual currency license and supervisory framework. Uh, and so uh, in, in your testimony, you were very frank about the total lack of internal controls in FTX and critical of their governance structure. So uh, I guess my first question to you is in your estimation, how much did the lack of a board of directors uh, attribute to the failure of, XT, F, of FTX and do you believe there would have been an opportunity to change course uh, if this default structure were identified early on? Uh, yes, I do. I think the lack of, a, of an independent board uh, was a critical aspect of the failure. And, and also in New York State, there are capitalization requirements uh, for licensee holders to have highly liquid capital to ensure uh, that financial integrity and to protect against outside shocks. Now, in, in this instance, how uh, would a capital requirement have changed the outcome uh, of the FTX failure? Yeah, I, I'm not a regulatory uh, expert. I mean, what I've, what, I've, what I've set forth in my testimony is that I think it's important for customer accounts to be segregated and for there to be transparency in what people can visualize in their account and they have you know, some strict rules relative to using customer assets. That's the extent of my, you know, of my views about the regulatory scheme. Uh, you know, I defer to others, you know, who are obviously more experienced on the regulatory side. That's one of the issues that we're trying to deal here is how do we get the appropriate and the proper regulation so that we can make sure that uh, individuals are protected. Uh, for example, uh, do you know and to what extent were U.S. persons trading on the FTX exchange? And do you believe that the controls were adequate in restricting access for U.S. persons? Because, you know, FTX.com was listed in the Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Uh, and despite it being publicly reported that uh, the U.S. subsidiary was a stronger and stronger position than its parent because of the narrowed offerings and oversights, um, there still seemed to be this direction toward U.S. Uh, persons. So uh, what do you think? Do you think that uh, 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 there should be, or the, the, the restricting access 
for U.S. persons or the controls were adequate? Well, certainly there was a limited number of people that in invested on the on the dot com, uh, which was not intended the intended use of that exchange. Uh, how that happened, obviously, we'll have to investigate, and what what where the breakdown was, you know, internally in our controls uh, that would have allowed that to happen. So I'd like, you know, at some point, I know you're not a regulatory expert, but you know, uh, to have conversation with you about looking at uh, some of the rules and the regulations that we put in place in the state of New York, because the debate that we have here at times is ceilings and floors and what would be appropriate to make sure that people uh, are protected. Um, and, uh, you know, you've already stated that FTX's lack of internal controls is unlike anything that you've ever seen uh, in your career and obviously has had a devastating impact on people who have trusted FTX uh, with their savings and investments. I also chair the House Foreign Affairs Committee, and I'm also concerned that these internal failures could have led to sanction evasion and illegal transactions on FTX's platform at a time when sanctions compliance is critical for supporting countries like Ukraine and slowing down Putin's war machine. Have you and your team investigated these issues since taking the helm at uh, FTX about anyone trying to avoid uh, sanctions? Yeah, we're certainly investigating all the aspects of the failure, and as, as the coming weeks, uh, we'll learn more, and I think we'll certainly be willing to you know, work with the committee to understand really what happened and share with, share with you to the extent possible. Gentlemen's time much. has expired. The gentleman from Georgia, Mr. Lattermilk, is now recognized for five minutes. Oh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Ray, thank you for being here today. <clears throat> Unfortunately, we aren't able to uh, question Sam Bankman-Fried. Um, I was looking forward to that. And, uh, however, I was concerned that you were going to testify first. I would have rather have had him testify first so we could qualify some of the statements that he may make with, uh, with you, who's in the current position. However, since we've been in here, a uh, there's been a leak of what was to be his testimony that has come out. And I'd like to ask you about something that he has uh, related in, in his testimony. Um, he said if he had not been arrested ahead of today's hearings, that he alleges that, that FTX U.S. has been and remains solvent and could pay off all of its customers tomorrow. Given the evidence you have and what you've gathered, is there any degree of truth to this claim? Uh, we still have a hole in the, in the U.S. So it's, as we sit here today, it is not solvent. That's just inaccurate. Uh, and I'm not sure how would you even know that, quite honestly. So we're hopeful uh, because the, the number of uh, customers and the volume of trading on the U.S. exchange was much smaller than .com somewhat driven by the number of withdrawals that took place before the bankruptcy on the U.S. silo. Uh, but right now we have a few hundred million dollars of value. Again, you have to look at value as of, say, today, right. still missing. Uh, we, haven't, we haven't ultimately, though, uh, found all the keys to the wallets. As we find and open those wallets, we'll, hopefully we'll be able to find more assets. And if we can attribute those to the U.S. silo, you know, certainly there's a pathway to, to recovery there. And so, you know, the, 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 really the case isn't closed yet uh, on the U.S. It's just premature, you know, to, to make a determination such as his. So there is a potential that what he is claiming is true. But um, so is, is, I guess that would be the reason why all of the assets in those wallets have been frozen on the U.S. side, 
as my follow-up question would be if they are uh, solvent, why would we freeze those, you know? And along with that, um, is there any evidence of commingling of funds between FTX.com, uh, FTXUS, or Alameda, or any of the three together? That's what we have. That's what we're looking at right now. I, I can't, you know, give you a, you know, a clear answer on that today. Uh, we're looking when we open up all the wallets. We look where the source is from from whence they came. We'll we'll have an answer for you, but it's it's just much too okay. early to, to tell you that. I appreciate that. But summarizing, there's not evidence right now that his statement would be true that FTX US is completely solvent. Well, clearly not. Okay. And something else that he did. Previously, uh, he stated that the Bahamian regulators, he gave the Bahamian regulators a one-day advance warning to allow uh, investors in the Bahamas to withdraw their funds. No one else outside the Bahamas was able to withdraw funds before the bankruptcy was filed. Uh, Mr. Freed said that he allowed the withdrawals because, quote, it was critical to the exchange to be able to have a future because that's where I am right now. And you do not want to be in a country with a lot of angry people in it. Is this explanation accurate? Well, here's what we know. I mean, I, I can't speak to his, his words. Um, what we do know is the liquidation proceeding in the, in the Bahamas uh, was filed effectively 24 hours before our Chapter 11 proceeding. During that time period, and we've documented this in our court filings as, as of last night, uh, the accounts were unfrozen just in the Bahamas. Over $100 million was released to approximately 1,500 customers in the Bahamas. Did you say 15 million or 15 100 million? million. 100 million. To 1,500 customers approximately. Okay. These are approximate numbers. Okay. And, and then, the, then the door was closed about the time of our Chapter 11 filing. And there were communications between Mr. Bankman-Fried and the Bahamian government specifically related to this, uh, this leakage of, 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 of assets. So Mr. Freed would have known that the bankruptcy filing was imminent when he yes, did this? Yes, he, he, was, he was certainly in discussions with his counsel, who was in discussions with the debtor's counsel. All right. I see my time is quickly running out. Thank you for, uh, for what you're doing and trying to recover what assets we can. And Mr. Chairman, I yield back. The gentleman from New Jersey, Mr. Gottheimer, who is also the Vice Chair of the Subcommittee on National Security, International Development and Monetary Policy, is now recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for convening this hearing. <clears throat> Since 2019, I have raised concern about the Securities and Exchange Commission's approach to digital assets. SEC Chairman Gensler has repeatedly claimed that most cryptocurrencies are covered by existing securities laws. Despite that, the SEC has not proposed a single rule to create guardrails for digital assets and has done a haphazard job of overseeing the space. The result has been a lack of certainty and clear rules of the road, and we are seeing the impact of that front and center today. They failed to do their job, and they failed to protect consumers, in my opinion. I've been calling on with other members on financial regulators to step up and create clear guardrails for digital assets. Nearly a year ago, I drafted the Stablecoin Innovation and Protection Act to create tough consumer protections and prevent destabilizing runs like we saw with the so-called Stablecoin Terra that failed earlier this year. I also invited Chairman Ross and Bam to my district to discuss the clear regulatory steps the CFTC could take to better protect consumers and prevent thieves and snake oil salesmen from ripping off Americans with worthless digital assets. 
I've consistently been engaging with all market participants, associations, and regulators to promote innovation in the responsible development of promising financial technology, all with a clear eye to protect consumers. Instead of writing clear rules and guidelines for digital asset firms, however, the SEC has created a patchwork of ad hoc policies for crypto firms purely through spotty enforcement actions and random letters, haphazard enforcement that has missed the worst offenders. You can't regulate through a random patchwork of letters. You have to write clear rules of the road, which is what I've been calling on for years now. Chairman Gensler has told our committee and stated publicly that he is the authority he needs to oversee this industry. Yet the SEC hasn't written rules and has failed to foresee and prevent disasters in the industry and protect consumers from Terra Luna to FTX. It's time for the SEC to step up and do its job or another regulator should take the lead. Mr. Ray, thank you for being here. Do you think U.S. financial regulators would have been satisfied with the accounting and risk mitigation practices that were in place at FTX International to prevent its failure from spilling over to FTX U.S. and American investors? Uh, you know, I, I, again, I, as I said on the record, I, I can't, you know, speak to what the regulatory fix is here. I mean, obviously, uh, uh, oversight is needed. Uh, obviously, we need to have customers have to have uh, control over their accounts. Um, and, uh, and clearly, there's... Uh, there's some needs here. I, I, you know, I can't, I can't really specify what they might be, and I leave that, you know, to the committee to obviously work with the agencies to. You know, FTX's groups, U.S.-based crypto derivatives and clearing platform Ledger X, that has been overseen by the CFTC since 2017, was not included in FTX's wider bankruptcy filing. And according to your initial review of the situation, Ledger X is still solvent. During his testimony before the Senate Agriculture Committee last week. Chairman Benham argued that it was the oversight of his agency that ensured Ledger X was insulated from the failure of other FTX firms. From what you've seen, what, what protected Ledger X from the failures of the broader FTX ecosystem, and what could U.S. regulators, including the SEC, have done to protect Americans using FTX U.S.? Uh, you know, certainly, uh, you know, we believe Ledger X, uh, you know, it is a regulated entity and it is a solvent and uh, the customer accounts are segregated. Uh, and obviously that, that goes a long way to uh, protecting customers. Do you believe that Mr. Mankin-Fried, when he says that all FTX U.S. users will receive a dollar on the dollar return of funds at the end of these bankruptcy proceedings? That's very speculative at this point. What are some of the biggest questions you still have for Mr. Mankin-Fried and his associates now that you've been through this for some period? I think the questions we have are not necessarily Mr. question for Mr. Fried. The questions we have are, you know, where, where are the assets, how we locate those assets, uh, it's a mining exercise at this point, uh, and uh, look, I, you know, at the end of the day, we're not going to be able to recover all the losses here. Right? Uh, money was spent that we'll never get back. There will be losses on the international side. We're hopeful on the U.S. side. Um, he'll answer to others related to what happened here. Our job is just to, you know, find the assets and try to get customers their money back as quickly as possible. When do you expect that to be? You know, it's it's these these bankruptcies take time. The assets uh, will take time to locate. Um, the process will, as I say, will take take months, not weeks. Uh, but we try to do this in the most uh, expeditious way possible. Thank you for being here. I yield back. The gentleman from Ohio, Mr. Davidson, is now recognized for five minutes. Um, Mr. Ray, thanks for what you're doing uh, to recover funds that uh, are missing and for helping us build the evidence trail to find out, you know, what happened. Uh, I, I think a lot of people 
look at your initial statements and, and you say, you know, we know the following. First, customer assets from FTX.com were commingled with assets from the Alameda trading platform. Second, Alameda used funds to engage in margin trading, which exposed customer funds to massive losses. Based on your review of the records, is the transfer of customer funds from FTX.com to Alameda Research in conflict with the FTX.com terms of service? Uh, yes, that's my view. Right. So they claim that they weren't supposed to be able to trade those funds, and clearly they traded those funds. I, I, I think that you know the, the, the difference in, in what's, what you may be hearing is that uh, you know unlike generally customer accounts, the Alameda account had no trading limitations. Uh, so you know, virtually unlimited positions they could take. Right. So when, when um, customers deposited funds into their FTX accounts, where did the cash go? Well, so, sometimes the money wasn't deposited in the FTX account. It was sent to Alameda to begin with. So, so it was misdirected from, from the start straight to Alameda. There, there was certainly some time period where there's no bank account at .com. And then ultimately, uh, you know, as we, if you look at the structure of this, Alameda was essentially a customer on that .com exchange and effectively, you know, borrowed money from or just transferred money from FTX customers to take its own positions on the Alameda hedge fund. Right. So, so at times it was just going straight to Alameda. At other times... Did you uncover a path where there was some sort of settlement, like in stocks where there's T plus two, where the, you know, there was settlement back and forth between FTX and Alameda? Ultimately, when we look at this, I mean, there is going to be, you know, I'm sure thousands and thousands of trades, right? So we're going to have to go back and, and do a very detailed analysis about every single... But they didn't have a structured settlement framework at all in any of their software or accounting systems? It, it doesn't appear so, no. Okay, and have you ever done bankruptcies where you had to deal with custody of stocks? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, obviously there you settle, you, clearly you own shares or you don't own shares. Uh, you take custody of the shares normally after a two-day settlement period. There's a netting period where firms that trade in these net out and settle the position at the end of the day. Uh, it doesn't seem any of this kind of thing existed for FTX. That's one of the findings. There was no uh, reconciliation of the ledger on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, was there anything that you could, have you detected a point in time where um, the assets on hand for this enterprise uh, matched the amount of customer deposits? Uh, we have to go back and look at that. I mean, we're, we're looking at a timeline. We, we, you know, we're going to have to back up from the petition date. Uh, my guess would be you'd have to back up for more than a year. And then we'll look at, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis. Again, they, they didn't reconcile Ledger on a day-to-day -day basis. We've got to now do that to find the answer to your question. Okay, so custody really seems to be one of the big things here. Clearly, they didn't have a way to reconcile cust custody on behalf of their customers. But sometimes when people were saying, boy, you know, I don't know about this. Maybe I'm going to take my funds out. Let's say somebody bought Bitcoin and now they want to exit with custody of Bitcoin and have self-custody. Uh, is that the point in time when uh, FTX or some combination of these entities acquired the Bitcoin so that they could deliver what the customer was requesting? Well, there's a certain amount of liquidity at a point in time. I, I think the problem happened when 
when there was effectively a run of the bank and there was just less less assets there than than, than the uh, uh, depositors effectively would require to be drawn out. Underscoring that is a commingling of those assets even amongst the customers themselves. So it's just really one pot of crypto, if you will. Right, okay, so no, no control, no custody. Uh, and the only real safeguard the individual consumer had as this was unwinding was the hope that they could somehow be one of the lucky people that decided to say, I'm gonna take possession and self-custody my own digital asset. Uh, those people, if they've exited and they have custody of the assets, are their assets now safe? Well, you're exactly on point. I mean, if we could all be as lucky as the Bahamian customers who got the money out. You have been listening right, to the House expired. Financial Services Committee hearing with uh, John Ray. He's the current CEO of FTX. So just a lot to parse through there. There's many more hours to go. And tomorrow he'll be before the Senate uh, as well. But there was some other news today that I wanted to also filter through the program. First off, we just got some breaking news. Um, OK, here's the backstory. Danske Bank um, basically had a money laundering scandal. They were worried that the cost was going to be about 15.5 billion kroner. That comes to about 2.1 billion dollars. Um, there were some revelations back in 2018 that the bank had looked past some serious red flags that indicated the criminals were actually using a now defunct Estonian unit to funnel billions and billions in suspicious funds out of former Soviet states into the West. Happened for about six years from 2007 years, 2008 to 2015. So that's the backstory. Um, we now know uh, that the bank is set is a uh, no. I'm gonna get the I'm gonna get the news in just a second. Just hold on. There we go. Um, that it is pleading guilty to fraud and is gonna forfeit about two billion dollars. They're saying that it defrauded U.S. banks uh, on Danske Bank Estonia customers. That they lied to regulators about deficient uh, systems. They pleaded guilty to conspiring to commit bank fraud. Um, they're also agreeing to pay about four hundred thirteen million dollars to resolve an SEC case, um, and they're gonna credit about eight hundred fifty million dollars payments to the SEC uh, on that. And then they're going to overall pleading guilty to fraud and forfeit in total about $2 million. So watching that news as well. So that was some negative news, some good news. And this is truly life-changing news. Um, there's not one person that you'll ever meet whose life hasn't been touched by cancer in some way. Um, Moderna has an experimental personalized cancer vaccine, and it's now reduced the risk of relapse or death from melanoma when it's combined with uh, a drug from Merck. This is a mid-stage trial. They have to go to phase three as well, but it's basically taking a little bit of uh, tissue from you and making a personalized mRNA uh, targeted cancer vaccine to help you fight the cancer you have, and then if it comes back, help you recognize that cancer and fight it again. Guy and I had the privilege of sitting down with Stefan Bonsell, he's the CEO of Moderna, and we talked through this truly momentous discovery. So we're very excited because we showed you know, a 44% decreased risk versus recurrence or death in this study. And we know it's reorder because the p-value, statistical significance, is very, very low. So that's very good. So the next step, because the data are so exciting, is to move to a phase three in skin cancer in melanoma as fast as we can in 2023. But also, we believe this is a good proof that this product made by Moderna is able to teach T cell in your immune system to look for cancer cell. And so we think this is applicable to over tumor types. And so we want with our partners Merck or MSD outside the US to go after a lot of phase three at the same time in parallel 
to bring this product to patients as soon as we can. You talk about it being applicable to, to other cancers, Stefan. Let, let's talk about kind of where we are in the bigger challenge. Immunotherapy, melanoma is relatively easy, easier. You get all the way down to the other end, pancreatic cancer, much more difficult. What you're doing now, how applicable is it going to be to other cancers? How quickly can you go from the easier end of the spectrum to the more difficult end of the spectrum? So we think we can go pretty quickly because through the phase one, two study, we have shown there's a good safety profile of a product combined to ketidra. As you know, in immunotherapy, sometimes the combination drive worse safety outcome. Well, in this case, and the data will be published very soon in the top tier journal, the safety profile is very similar to ketidra alone. And so that gives us a lot of hope. Now, as you know, cancer has a lot of peace we don't understand. But the thing we're going to do is try those uh, different tumor types in the clinic because that's the only way to really know. We believe the mechanism of our product is sound now. We had shown before at ASCO 2019 that we could teach T cell of a cancer patient to recognize uh, the cancer, the epitope, the mutation, but we didn't know if it was clinically significant. Well, now we know. And so we're just going to go after it. Is it going to work everywhere? I don't know. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to try aggressively. You know, we have a $17 billion balance sheet. And then there's Merck paying the other half of the studies. It's a 50-50 cost share and profit share. And so we're going to be very aggressive for the benefit of patients. And in the meantime, you know, creating value for shareholders. So uh, along that point, um, when you measure the risk of cancer returning, the band seems really wide, right? 0.31 to 1.08. Everything over one is more like the control group. Um, why is it so wide? And what does that tell you? You see a lot of variability because first, people didn't get the products at the 45-day mark. You know, that was our goal from needle of biopsy to injecting the first dose at 45 days. That's the average. Some people got lower, some people get more. That's one piece. Then it's the size of a study. You know, even though it's statistically significant, uh, as the statisticians have run the math, and the p-value is very low, it's only 150 people. And so I really believe as we go into phase three, and as we reduce the manufacturing time, because while today the average is 45, and we have people getting their vaccine much later, because, you know, we were not running 24-7. This was a phase two. Now that we know this is working for real, we are doing a massive yeah. investment in manufacturing to be able to hold the line on timeline and to even shrink it. I think we can shrink it to 30 days. So I think you're going to see the, the variability going down with time. How long will that take? The, the science here is basically you have surgery or, as you say, a biopsy. You take it away. Uh, you mash it up. You run some AI. You come back with that individual mRNA uh, treatment. In terms of getting that timeline down, what is the bottleneck? Is it the computers? Is it the machines? Is it, just tell me what it is that, that you need to do to get that to be sped up. Sure. So the 45 days that I think we can get down to 30 days and maybe more uh, in terms of shortening the time, it's first sequencing the tumour. So we take a tumour biopsy, we have to sequence it and do all the sample prep. And of course, this is very important because if you make a mistake then, then the information is wrong downstream. Then the analytics uh, in the cloud is very quick, a few hours. It's a very complex algorithm, but you, you can buy CPU. So it's all in the Amazon cloud. And then it goes back into the machine, making the, the DNA that is specific, that is coding the mRNA, takes a bit of time. And this, we think we might have soon options to shrink that even further. Mm -hmm. Then the mRNA is a few days. 
we need to fill the vials and then it's quality control to make sure the product of course is sterile which takes two weeks so i think we're also working with how can we use new technology to shrink this down as well that was Stefan Bonselli, the CEO of Moderna. And we just went on, I mean, and we were talking to him about um, uh, China and COVID vaccines and stuff. And then at the end, he basically said that he hopes that this could actually eradicate cancer uh, forever, not making it a death sentence. It's like I said, no one's not been touched by cancer. So it was a huge huge moment. Um, okay, let's get back to economic data and the markets. Um, so this was the this is the landscape, right? You got the CPI month on month in November, just up one tenth of 1% on a year on year basis. Uh, core, you're looking at 6%. So inflation definitely slowing. What's also slowing is the equity rally. Uh, you're now looking at the S&P, which is pretty much flat on the day. The Dow's flirting with negative territory. The Nasdaq's only up by five-tenths of 1%, setting the stage for tomorrow, where it feels like a 50 basis point hike is definitely locked in from the Fed. So we need more info. Who do we talk to? Mike McKee, Bloomberg International Economics and Policy Correspondent. Mike, I appreciate that you're the eco guy. But what did you make of the slide within uh, the equity markets, the huge rally after um, the data, and then now we're giving up all those gains? What's up with that? <laughs> if I knew Alex, I'd be rich, and we could, you know, buy an island somewhere. Yeah, okay, um, I'm in. I I know somebody tried to do that, and they've ended up in trouble today. But um, <laughs> no, I have no idea. Uh, obviously, you can you can explain the initial reaction as okay, uh, inflation's going down, so the Fed won't have to go as far, so therefore uh, we won't have to discount as much of our future earnings in the stock market, and we can lower interest rates on the bond market side because you won't have to pay as much of an inflation premium. But what happens after that is a lot about positioning and a Mm -hmm. lot about where people are. Uh, And on the bond market side, you've got supply questions about um, the especially with the federal government and the auctions that didn't go well yesterday. There's a whole bunch of things out there that could be a reason. Uh, and that's why I'm the eco guy and <laughs> not no, it's the a fair market point. guy. Um, so then to the CPI, um, it's, a, it's the next installment of inflation is definitely slowing. But I guess the question I have is, like, how fast can it slow? Because when we first looked at the Dow, I'm just leaving the Dow, and I appreciate no one cares about the Dow, it was up, like, almost 800 points. I mean, just because it's slowing doesn't mean it's dropping. <laughs> well, uh, when you look at the Dow and it's up 800 points, on a percentage basis, that's a lot less than totally. it used to be. Uh, but uh, in terms of inflation, it's hard to say. Uh, it's hard to imagine that we would get ongoing increases in inflation as low as we got, the uh, one-tenth for the headline and the two-tenths for the core this month. Uh, That's just not a normal inflation rate. Uh, We do have base effects built in, so we're seeing bigger declines in the year-over-year number than uh, we will continue to get. I mean, that that will start to... uh, to fade, so uh, the kind of the best guess by the markets, uh, well, no, by economists. I, I want to separate the two. <clears throat> by economists and the Fed, is that you'll get down to somewhere around three percent by the end of next year. Mm-hmm. But if you look at some market early market indicators, some uh, ahead indicators, um, and uh, this is something we've been doing over the last couple of days with the ECAN function on Bloomberg, is you look at the inflation swaps trading, and they basically have you down to less than three and a half by May. Hmm. Um, now, the inflation swaps indicators were the closest forecast to what we got today. So maybe you want to pay attention to that. 
So if we were to see those same materials slowing, like dropping, not just slowing, where would we see that within the CPI? Well, the biggest issue, the biggest thing everybody's waiting for is for when housing turns around. Uh, Jay Powell was talking about this uh, a week or so ago at the Brookings Institution when he uh, appeared there. Uh, the Fed knows from current indicators, Zillow indicator, apartments.com indicator, uh, th there are private companies tracking the price of rents. And remember, housing is basically uh, imputed rents. Uh, and those are dropping. Uh, mm -hmm. It takes a long time because you're not signing a new lease every day or right. buying a new house every day. So it takes a while for all that to get into the economy. Uh, the Fed's kind of looking through that right now. And at some point, and most economists seem to think it's going to happen late spring or summer, then the contribution of uh, housing to inflation is really going to drop off. And it was up seven-tenths. Uh, this uh, this month. And so if that were to drop to uh, one-tenth or if it were to drop uh, even to ne a negative uh, contribution, mm -hmm. then you would have a big fall in inflation. And but I think that's what people are looking for next. What about core, X, uh, X, uh, core services X shelter? Yeah. Uh, the Fed's been looking at that because they do know this is going on. And it has slowed. Uh, there were a couple of weird areas. Um, admissions to like uh, sporting events and admissions to, uh, to sporting events. Sporting events and movies and things like that. Admissions prices were up by something like 4%. It was a, it was a record and nobody quite knows why that was, and nobody anticipates that that's going to continue. Uh, and so uh, there, there were a couple of those things that if you took out, uh, then services, X housing and uh, energy were, was about flat. Hmm. Uh, so that does suggest that there could be some good news out there in uh, the next month or two. Within that, where do you think the uh, ability for prices to fall even more, even faster lies? Uh, well, I, I think the, the biggest issue is what's going to happen with energy, because gasoline prices, they flattened out for about a month, and now they're going back down again. And if that continues because we're in the non-driving season, mm -hmm. then that will put a big downward pressure on headline inflation. And then the question is, does that money that you're not spending putting gas in your tank pop up somewhere else? Or do we just see inflation start to fall off? And the other side of that question in terms of services is, do we see wages start to level off for service industry employees, which would suggest that uh, we're seeing business drop a little bit uh, for uh, service companies and their, their uh, margins are starting mm -hmm. to rationalize and therefore they don't have to keep raising prices at the restaurants or the car washes or whatever. And uh, that would also bring down inflation. Do, does this number and the market reaction make Powell's job harder or easier tomorrow? I don't think it really changes his job tomorrow. Uh, his, Maybe not delivering the 50 bips, yeah. but in the presser. Well, in, in a way, it may, probably increases the need for him to bash Wall Street about the head and shoulders that we're not going to be cutting rates anytime soon, mm -hmm. because that's already been priced in. Uh, we saw Fed Funds futures drop the peak 
rate. It was uh, like 498, so roughly 5%, down to like 484 last I looked. So uh, the markets are already pricing in rate cuts again because of this CPI report. And that's the last thing the Fed wants because then, of course, we see uh, financial conditions start to ease, and mm-hmm. that makes the Fed's job a little harder. So he's probably got a, a little tougher job in that sense tomorrow by saying um, we don't, he, he, given the data, he doesn't want to say we're done, right. uh, but he does want people to realize that when they do finish, they're going to stay there for a while, uh, stay there long enough to make sure that inflation doesn't come back. Love it. Mike, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Looking forward to your question at the presser. I say it every uh, time that the Fed speaks and Jay Powell's in front of the press. Mike asks the, Mike asks the best questions. Wall Street always winds up talking about what his answer is uh, to Mike's question. Um, all right, Mike, thanks a lot. Mike McKee, Bloomberg International Economics and Policy Correspondent. Have a great night, guys. We'll see you tomorrow. This is Bloomberg.